0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute.
1: Thousands of people were sampled with smartphones in the real world. And they asked them, what are you doing right now? And where is your mind right now? 47% of the average American adult spends their day not paying attention to what they're doing.
0: That's Richard Davidson, one of the world's leading experts on the impact of contemplative practices, such as meditation. He's the founder of the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Once the parlance of the enlightened, meditation and mindfulness have gone mainstream. And for good reason. The hype about them is backed by hard science. And perhaps it's also because many of us realize we need to relearn how to pay attention. Recent studies show eight weeks of regular mindfulness routine improves the density of the brain's gray matter. The effects of meditation are similarly documented. Among other benefits, regular meditation may improve perception, body awareness, pain tolerance, and emotion regulation. This episode goes beyond the buzzwords to dig into the data and share real-world examples of the outcomes seen when meditation and mindfulness are practiced in schools and other institutions. Davidson is joined by Robert Roth and Perry Peltz. Roth is a meditation teacher and executive director of the David Lynch Foundation, a charity that brings meditation to underserved youth, veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress, and survivors of domestic violence. He has taught transcendental meditation for four decades. Peltz moderates the conversation. She's a documentary filmmaker and journalist and hosts two programs for Sirius XM. Richard Davidson begins by explaining the term mindfulness.
1: Well, mindfulness has been defined in many different ways. uh, And in the popular press, uh, one of the ways that mindfulness has been defined is to pay attention on purpose, non-judgmentally. Mindfulness in the traditional context from which it arose also means remembering to bring a certain kind of view to everyday interactions to each moment in our day. And remembering to bring a certain view really means remembering that uh, each of us share the same wish to be happy and to be free of suffering, Uh, remembering that we can actually uh, help to touch other people in a way that can promote well-being in both themselves and in ourselves. Uh, and that quality of remembering in a very intentional way to bring that kind of view to each interaction also is at the very root of what in the traditional contemplative traditions uh, were, was understood as mindfulness.
2: So Bob, you and I were talking before the session. Transcendental meditation is different from mindfulness. Is that correct? Or it can be there are many, many mindfulness techniques.
3: I like to say it's one of the mindfulness techniques. Yeah. The analogy that I like to use is you're on a little boat and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and and all of a sudden you get these giant swells, 40 foot high swells, and you could rightfully think the entire ocean is in upheaval. But if you could do a cross-section of the ocean you see that there's these little itty bitty 30 foot high waves and the ocean in reality is a mile deep. And at the depth of the ocean, it's pretty darn silent. This is natural to the ocean, that's equally natural to the ocean, so it's an analogy to the mind. The surface, the surface of the mind, the monkey mind, I call it the gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta-gotta mind if anybody has that. i got to do this and i got to do that. No, gonna, a, no nah, one has nobody. that you know and i got to make a list and i got to find a list and i got to slow down and i got to get going and i got to get to sleep so that's this and it's a natural human instinct to wish to to desire to have some inner calm some inner clarity some inner centeredness something inner and the operative word there is inner and in this meditation this approach to mindfulness this meditation we hypothesize that there's a level of every human being's mind, deep within, that is already quiet and silent. It's already there. And transcendental meditation is, is a simple technique, completely effortless, that allows the active, agitated mind to access that inner calm. And there's a whole constellation of changes that take place in the brain and the body.
2: Richie, you study the brain. And, and to people who say, oh, this is a little bit of hocus pocus here, you say no. Not so.
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, that's a good invitation to uh, say a little bit about the kind of work that we and now many others have been doing. Uh, One of the remarkable uh, findings uh, in the modern neuroscientific literature is findings related to this idea of neuroplasticity. Uh, Our brains are constantly changing, wittingly or unwittingly, most of the time our brains are changing unwittingly. Most of the time, we are subject to forces around us which are shaping our brains in ways that are completely unintentional, like a rudderless (coughs) sailboat that is just uh, being pushed by the winds on the turbulent ocean that Bob described. (laughs) Um, uh, We can all take more responsibility for the shaping of our own brains. That's what this work is showing. And we could take more responsibility by engaging in specific mental strategies that can promote well-being and that, in the process, change the brain and the body in ways that scientists are discovering are salubrious. They actually can be um, beneficial in terms of uh, age-related changes. They are beneficial in terms of inflammatory mechanisms in both the brain and the body. Uh, All kinds of things are now being discovered Uh, And so this notion that uh, our brains are plastic and are just simply being subject subject willy-nilly to the forces around us um, is something that we can change uh, by engaging in these simple mental habits. And I I, want to also add that I think that if you look at the data carefully from all the scientific research, one of the things that uh, I think any reasonable person would be led to conclude is that one size does not fit all. There are many different methods and strategies for cultivating um, uh, these uh, uh, states of well-being. And one of the challenges, I think, in modern scientific research is to better figure out which kind of person may benefit from which kind of practice. But the bottom line is that the brain does change. We are finding structural changes as well as functional changes in the brain that are associated with the systematic regular practice of these methods, and it doesn't take much to produce some initial change. We published a paper just very recently showing that two weeks of training in a practice that involves cultivating compassion can change the brain in as little Uh, As two weeks, 30 minutes a day, that's a total of seven hours of practice. And this was a very rigorous study where participants were randomly assigned to different groups and we measured their brain in an MRI scanner before and after these two weeks of practice. And we can show
2: changes after just this short period of time. Bob, I want to ask you the same question because, of course, you're not just teaching people like me (laughs) to meditate, you're teaching at-risk communities, women who have been abused, uh, veterans with PTSD, people who have really had significant uh, emotional and physical stresses. What are you understanding about the brain science?
3: Well, uh, similar to what, I mean, what Richie just said, um, di- it's known, and Richie can comment on this, every experience changes the brain in a different way. So if you're listening to classical music, it may have one impact on the brain. If you're studying or you're thinking about compassion, it may have a different effect. Is that true? Mm-hmm. So in the different meditations, and I want to say, underscore, I completely agree with Richie, that there, are, there is not one-size-fits-all, and that I'm a big proponent of people looking into and experiencing different approaches to see what fits, what feels right, Um, Myself, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for 46 years, ever since I was 81. (laughs) Human (laughs) meditation is (laughs) done for (laughs) him. Look how good he looks. I am 65. But um, uh, I've practiced with, I've gone to events Richie has put on where I've learned many different mindfulness practices and tools and techniques, and I appreciate them very much. Transcendental meditation is not a specific, you're not trying to cultivate or an attempt to cultivate loving compassion or following the breath, it's actually just giving an experience of calm that's within. And when you have that experience of calm, just that, that hypothesis that exists within that experience, it has distinct changes in the way the brain functions, whether it's um, strong fr- frontal lobe coherence with alpha or uh, reduction in uh, increased blood flow to the front of the brain and decreased blood flow to the stem the midbrain, different changes, there's a reduction in cortisol levels by 30% biochemical changes. The, I, I think personally, and this is where Richie is the researcher, he's the academic, he's leading the way with that. What I want to do is take even what we have already, what Richie has discovered already and what we've discovered and get it out to people who need it the most. Continue with the research. Has to be. Has to be much more research. And Richie just was telling me about some extraordinary developments at his university. But we're working with UNICEF. My desire is to get meditation to uh, refugee camps. We're talking with the UN women about bringing this to a million women around the world who are suffering from the worst nightmare of trauma and stress.
2: So Bob, when, you, when we talk about, we just talked about some of the brain changes that we see, I'm curious, you are teaching to these, to these at-risk communities. What impacts have you seen? And I assume you've seen something, otherwise you wouldn't continue to be doing it.
3: Well, and I'd love to have Richie also talk about because they're active in schools. I'm getting to him. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> He's stressing me. <laughs>
3: I'm just very honored to be with you. So. I, won't, I won't bring in Richie, And yes I will. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're right now involved, we're uh, 5,000 kids in the San Francisco public schools. People say, well, San Francisco, but believe me, San Francisco is very conservative um, parents there, too. Um, San Francisco public schools, several thousand in Los Angeles. We're just starting programs in New York, in Washington, D.C., and in Detroit. And what I think what is extraordinary about the work that we're doing with TM, as it's called, is that it's very simple for a child to do it. And there's, there's a good traction with it. Kids really like it a lot. And they'll do it on the weekends when they're not being asked to do it. What we do is we start something called quiet time, which is 10 minutes at the beginning of the school day and 10 minutes at the end of the school day. The whole school is quiet. I mean, the whole school. And the kids are an op- given an option, do some form of meditation. They can do silent, sustained reading, or they can sleep. And our experience is like, we have like 96% of the kids <coughs> want to learn to meditate. It doesn't hurt if the, you know, the captain of the football team adopts the meditation. But to get to your point, they've had very significant uh, improvements in reductions in anxiety and depression and, and uh, absenteeism, suspensions, expulsions, improvements in graduation rates. The superintendent of the San Francisco school said this is the single most important educational innovation he's seen. In, Thirty years, because its focus is on learning readiness. What do we do to make that child ready to learn when he or she sits down in that first period of class?
2: So, Richard, the same question for you. Obviously, the science is super important, right? It sets, um, it sets precedent, but I'm curious: what have you seen, really, anecdotally, in terms of the people that you're working with? How does this change people's lives? Well, I
1: can tell you both anecdotally, and I also can tell you in terms of hard-nosed data. Um, what kind of changes we've seen. And I should also say that we uh, have also um, been inspired to take some of this work out of the laboratory and bring it to the real world. We've developed a curriculum for preschool children that we call the kindness curriculum. And it's now being taught in public schools in the context of serious randomized controlled trials. And we just published the first major scientific study of the impact of the kindness curriculum uh, in public school children. Uh, And it it just came out in 2015. And we showed that kids, uh, uh, and these are in schools where 70% of the kids qualify for free lunch. Uh, So these are families that have experienced considerable adversity. And uh, what we see is that on some key metrics that involve the regulation of attention, delay of gratification, and also measures of pro-social behavior, like cooperation and sharing, there are substantial changes that we can see after a 12-week curriculum compared to kids who've been randomly assigned to a standard curriculum. Uh, and uh, anecdotally, uh, we have been contacted by many of the parents uh, who have, um, whose children have participated, and uh, they're amazed at the, the the response of the kids because as very much as Bob said, when, when challenges occur, which of course they will occur, um, the kids actually remember to do the practices and they want to do the practices because they, they've tasted the kind of calm um, uh, uh, sense of well-being that Bob was alluding to uh, that I think is really present in all of us in, in some incipient way. And if we can learn to recognize that and to cultivate it, Uh, It's it's something that we can come back to on a regular basis that most people report being very helpful and these kids um, Have tasted that and they come back to it when challenges occur And so we've now been inspired to implement a program for the parents. We're working with um, the head start in our local community and we've developed a parent program specifically for parents of these kids who've been subjected to a lot of adversity uh, to uh, enable the parents to taste what we're doing. And the teachers, their regular classroom teachers, go through a 10-week training that we provide before we bring it into the classroom with the kids. So this is something that is touching um, all these groups, kids, teachers, and parents, in a way which is synergistic uh, and I think can really lead to very positive change. Data, hard-nosed scientific data indicates that a child's capacity at age four and five to exercise self-control and to delay their gratification is a strong predictor of major life outcomes when the kids are in their 30s. It trumps IQ, mm-hmm. trumps grade point average, and it trumps standardized test scores uh, in terms of its ability to predict things like antisocial behavior substance abuse, and even financial success, uh, with very carefully controlling for all of the um, potential extraneous confounding variables. And so if we can figure out a way to teach children early on how better to regulate their attention, to exercise self-control, to regulate their emotions, we think it can have multiplicative effects as
2: the children develop. Bringing it back to, to us, I think that I'll let you and Richie in the discussion that I constantly have with Bob, which is, but I don't have the time to do this. How do you find the time in an already burdened day to do this? Um,
1: you know, what I, would, uh, what I would suggest is start really simply, really with extremely small periods. Where you can maximize the likelihood of success. I think if you if you say to yourself, "I'm going to practice 45 minutes a day," you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, and so, try two minutes three times a day. Um, there's nobody in this room who can who can honestly say that they can't afford a total of six minutes. Try it, um, and uh, uh, I think that you'll be surprised at a number of things that will occur in as short as two minutes what you will discover about your mind. We are so externally focused, we have no idea what's going on inside. Uh, You know, there's recent data which suggests, um, and this is from, from American adults, thousands of people were sampled with smartphones in the real world, and they asked them, What are you doing right now, and where is your mind right now? 47% of the average American adult spends their day not paying attention to what they're doing, 47% of the time. Folks, I am absolutely convinced that we could do better. I'll vote
3: for him. (laughs) Um, I'd like to, uh, yeah. Uh, I have a little different uh, message or approach, and that is, with Transcendental Meditation, it's done 20 minutes in the morning. And twenty minutes in the afternoon. First thing in the morning you get up twenty minutes earlier and and people say, Well, I could never get up twenty minutes earlier. That's are you out of your mind? And I'm not out of my mind. Um, the experience is that the rest gained during the meditation is in many regards deeper than sleep. It also wakes up the brain with the alpha and is quite energizing. And then it's done sometime in the afternoon or early evening. It can be done on a bus, it can be done on a plane, it can be done um, you could do it in a car. The caveat is someone else is driving. Um, um, as a, a As a good Jewish boy in my early days, when I, you know, just was traveling around, I did a lot of meditations in Catholic churches because they're always open, and they don't mind that you're sitting with your eyes closed. Um, but we do it twenty minutes twice a day, and I talked. We're doing a lot of work now with, as I know. Uh, Richie is doing with the, with the banks and hedge funds, and very, very busy people. We just started a program with the NBA referees. Now, there's people who need something. And also, we're about to do a study with the National Football League on post-concussive syndrome. But um, this one man, this one hedge fund guy, I said, how do you find the time to meditate? And he said, if I, when I considered it as time management, I never found the time because I don't manage my own time. But when I looked at it as energy management, He said, I'm an investor. If I invest 20 minutes now at 6 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning and get that rest and rejuvenation, what are the next eight or 10 hours going to be like? Spontaneously, the mindfulness, the the receptivity. And I would say most people don't get in 20 minutes twice a day, but I would say most people do once a day. And then there are other wonderful mindfulness techniques you can do during the day as well. I always felt like. One sets up the other. I never felt they should be siloed, these different approaches.
2: How do we practice mindfulness? How do we practice TM? Uh, well, uh, as I suggested earlier,
1: when we were just huddling and discussing the structure of this, maybe we'll end uh, this session with a little bit of guided practice so that you can all have a little taste. But um, I love that. Um, great. So well, we can do that, but uh, in the meantime, um, uh, Really, the essence of meditation is awareness. Uh, And it is bringing our awareness to what it is that we're doing. Now, that may sound obvious. uh, And in many ways, it is obvious. Uh, But if we're honest with ourselves uh, in terms of where our minds are, uh, our minds can be in all kinds of places as we are going about our daily life doing things. And so, when we sit down to practice, First of all, in the traditions in which I'm familiar, um, both secular as well as non-secular, what we do is when we sit down to practice, we invoke the intention that I'm sitting down to practice now. I'm putting my butt on a seat or on a cushion because I understand that these practices can be helpful in calming my mind and opening my heart for me, but primarily what they're best for is that they can actually benefit others. That when I am calm and when my heart is open, all of those in my circle can taste it, can feel it, are benefited by it. So sitting down and putting your butt on a chair or a cushion is a radical act of generosity. And we know, and I'm being perfectly serious, we know, that one of the best ways to change the brain to promote well-being is to engage in generosity. And viewing this as an act of generosity, I think, is really important. You know, I can be really specific. One of the techniques that we use, but it's really important to see this, is the techniques are techniques. The techniques are really not what's important. They are vehicles to get you to recognize these places that all exist within you, these places of calmness and open heartedness that every human, every normal human being has access to. We can think of these places of calmness and, and warm heartedness or open heartedness in the same way that we think of language. We all have the capacity for language, but we need the right strategies, techniques and environments to nourish that innate capacity. And so these are techniques that simply help us to nourish those qualities.
3: Bob, same question for you. Um, I'll use so we have that analogy of the waves on the surface, the gotta 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 mind, and then in principle, there's no belief necessary. You can be 100% skeptical. I'm an unusual TM teacher, meditation teacher, because I'm really a skeptical person by nature. I annoy people for that, but in general. But so we hypothesize that there's this level deep within everyone where the mind is naturally quiet and calm. And so how do we get from here to here? And the key word I'm going to use is effortlessly. That Effortlessly. That doesn't mean kind of, sort of, but completely effortlessly. And I'll give you uh, an example that has nothing to do with meditation, but I'll tie it back. I won't go off on a tangent, I promise. Sitting in a room and you're listening to some music, and it's probably the worst music you've ever heard in your life. And in the other room, some unbelievably beautiful music comes on. Where does your attention naturally get drawn to? Or you're at a cocktail party. I'm sure this has never happened, and you're stuck in a corner in a horrifically boring conversation. And there's no escape, and five feet over there, there's some interesting people telling a very interesting story. Where does your attention go? It's effortlessly drawn there. So what we say is the natural tendency of the human mind Whether what we go towards ends up being fulfilling is another question, but the attention is drawn to that. The natural tendency of our mind is to be drawn to something more satisfying. But it goes out through the senses. And in Transcendental Meditation, we learn how to give the attention of the mind an inward direction. And without any effort, as a matter of fact, if you make any effort, it stops the process. Without any effort, your attention settles down to quieter and quieter levels of the mind. Why? because the quieter levels of the mind are inherently more satisfying. So there's no effort. Thoughts are a part of this process. We're not trying to clear the mind of thoughts. We're just letting the agitated, active thinking mind settle down by its own nature. Like you teach a child how to dive. You stand on the side of the pool, honey, and you stand like that, and the rest is automatic. And for that, we give a person a mantra. Not like that, but close. Uh, <laughs> a, a mantra that has no meaning and they're taught how to use it properly. And the last thing I'll say is one of the downsides of this is it's not scalable like mindfulness, where you can just teach a whole group of people. This is taught one-to-one by a certified teacher. So you get a teacher one-to-one for an hour, an hour and a half, and you, you get it. And then after that, it takes about an hour a day over four consecutive days. And when we go into the toughest schools in in Hartford, Connecticut, I bring in 50 teachers. And every child gets that first day one-to-one. And it really is powerful for getting traction.
1: Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Tyrone Beverly. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit organization by the name of I'm Unique. And we focus on doing a lot of work in uh, cultural institutions such as museums, invite different groups of people together around health and wellness issues. And my question is, I hear you got an emphasis on uh, the youth and some referees. I'm wondering if there's any focus on law enforcement because they experience a lot of uh, trauma, a lot of stress in our communities. And I think there's a lot of disconnect in
3: those communities, so bringing uh, those groups together to practice mindfulness, compassion, kindness,
1: so we can actually change the direction of our country.
2: Yeah, it's That's a-, a great question.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And I can tell you that we have received lots of inquiries from uh, law enforcement agencies. We actually recently got a call from the police department uh, in the city of Madison asking us to uh, help them implement a program for exactly that reason. Uh, And I think that there are wonderful opportunities out there to explore the impact of this. These are all, um, all the kinds of approaches that Bob and I have been describing, I think are, um, they're low-risk approaches. Mm-hmm. I think the, the side effects, if you will, uh, are really quite minimal. Uh, I think that we as a society have an obligation, a moral obligation to try these things because I think that the potential benefit um, is really significant and the downside is, is very, very low. Uh, and I think that law enforcement is a great domain in which I think we really can have impact.
2: Hi, I'm Tane Danger. I'm a terrible meditator. Uh, And I also, I do improv comedy theater, and I know that there's been some research around art and artists uh, using meditation, or even without using meditation, sort of getting to a similar place. And I was wondering if either of you could talk about that, the, the sort of overlap between the arts and artists and meditation.
1: Yeah, maybe we each have something to say about that. I think it's a great question. Uh, We have been really interested in that issue over the last year or so in particular. Uh, I think that for uh, many individuals providing them with an artistic mode of expression to help them express what is maybe difficult to express in language, Uh, that they can express through an artistic medium can be really helpful in consolidating some of the insights that they can glean from these sorts of practices. Uh, And so I think that the arts have a really important role, and there are certain um, mindfulness and other types of contemplative curricula that have more systematically incorporated the arts as part of that curriculum, and I think there's a lot more that we can do. Now, you know, sometimes people come to me and say, well, isn't practicing the violin the same as meditating? And I would say that it may share some elements in common, but here's the difference. When we typically engage in practice of a musical instrument or an artistic medium, if we're sitting down to paint, we don't normally invoke the intention that I'm going to sit down and paint now for the benefit of others. Or I'm going to sit and practice the violin for the benefit of others. When I sit down to meditate, that is the intention. I am practicing not so much for myself, but primarily for the benefit of others.
3: I would say throughout history, throughout time, artists have always talked about, the great artists have talked about transcendent moments, accessing some unboundedness within, silence that informs their creativity. There's a beautiful ancient yogic description curving back on myself, accessing that that calm that exists already within everyone, I create again and again and again and again. It doesn't allow, you know, you don't get stale and and rigid, and I would agree with Richie that the purpose of meditation is not a selfish practice. I mean, you know, you do turn on a light bulb, the filament is lit, but the whole room lights up. So, yes. Meditation, is specifically, has a very powerful role in the artistic process.
2: Um, okay, hi. My name is Erica Kesman, and I consult with companies on the impact of technology on things like corporate culture, productivity, employee engagement, and I'd love to hear an example or two of the kinds of mindfulness programs that you're bringing into corporations, number one. And number two is, how are you measuring, or have you seen great examples where you're able to measure the impact of bringing these programs into a company?
1: Uh, Well, we actually now have a collaboration with uh, the School of Business at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where we've developed a program on cultivating well-being in the workplace, and we're now implementing that in major corporations. And and we're right now in a situation where um, we're getting many more requests than we have the bandwidth to actually implement, because we're doing it all in the context of serious scientific research. We're evaluating the impact. But we're interested in evaluating the impact on metrics that involve um, attention, the ability to focus uh, on uh, cooperation and uh, the ability to work in a team in a way that is maximally effective. Uh, metrics also involving healthcare care utilization um, uh, and health because, Uh, we have the conjecture that the regular practice of these methods may result in decreased healthcare utilization, decreased use of prescription drugs, which if that is true, it would translate into decreased healthcare costs. And if if that actually pans out in a serious large-scale study, every corporation on the planet is gonna want a piece of this, and then it's gonna be like gay marriage and the world is gonna change just like that. Let's hear it for the Supreme Court.
2: <laughs> My name is Kenji Summers. Uh, I'm an Arthur V. Davis fellow. I'm here for the first time. Um, I have a nonprofit that helps young people get passports and travel internationally for the first time. I also work at Nike, and we deal with athletes, some of the best athletes in the world, such as Michael Jordan to Kobe Bryant, have credited mindfulness and meditation for some of their best performance. Now. I deal primarily with junior high and high school athletes in my work at Nike. And I'm wondering, how do you reach that audience with mindfulness and meditation in the best way? Great question.
1: Why don't you start? Yeah, why don't you start?
3: Um, It just quite spontaneously, quite naturally, when you're offering meditation in a school as part of a quiet time program, then uh, we find that the kids, the athletes, almost are the first to recognize its benefit, you know, that inner calm, that inner stability, that inner steadiness. They talk about the zone, and and pretty quickly with with TM student young people recognize that. We've worked on a col- lot of college campuses with soccer teams and squash teams, and um, I know Pete Carroll is involved with meditation. To, with the Seattle Seahawks. But with kids, it's just we just do it in the context of a quiet time program because the beauty of that is they have a structure where in the morning they all meditate. And in the afternoon they all meditate. Or they sit quietly or they nap or whatever. And that within a month or so the kids get the traction where they do it on their own. And Richie was talking about parents, we we go into a community We're not just teaching the kids. We teach everybody. We teach the families. We we teach Anybody who wants to learn, we include in this, because it takes a village. And the same thing with veterans. We don't just teach the veteran. We teach the spouse, the grandparents, the kids, because PTS is contagious. But to answer your question, in the context of a school program, it's most effective.
1: And let me just mention one other thing completely out of the box related to something I said earlier. We have this simple mindfulness app Uh, that we've developed where a a kid, this is targeted for middle school kids, uh, simply taps on an iPad every nth breath, say every fifth breath. Uh, And if they make a mistake, um, they start um, uh, tracking over, and if they have successive um, periods where they're tracking correctly, the game reinforces them in particular ways. Uh, And um, kids actually enjoy doing this. They report that they feel calm after it. uh, And they actually get a taste of simple (laughs) mindfulness of breathing that we can actually teach in the context of a simple video game. And so I think that there are all kinds of ways of doing this.
2: All right. Um, Howard, you've been standing there patiently at the mic. Let's get a quick question, I'm going to ask you to be quickly, to quick answers, because then I want to give you the opportunity to do our exercise. I'm Howard Cohen. <laughs> I run a family
3: office. And uh, my question is very simple. Uh, have you, uh, either of
1: you, been engaged by the Congress?
2: Uh, <laughs> you think they could use it? Mindfulness. Uh, <laughs> you think they could use a little mindfulness there? Yeah.
1: There is one openly Tim declared Ryan. meditator in the yeah. United States Who? Congress. Tim Ryan. Tim His Ryan. name yeah. is Tim Ryan. He come, he's from Northeast Ohio district, the Youngstown, Ohio area. Uh, he wrote a book called the Mind- A Mindful Nation. Uh, I would highly recommend that book where he talks about the application of mindfulness to the political sphere. Uh, and he has uh, attempted to bring people from both sides of the aisle um, to groups that meet in the US Capitol. Uh, and so uh, unfortunately, not many people are showing up. But um, it's it's wonderful that it's starting.
0: At this point in the discussion, mindfulness expert Richard Davidson asks the room to silence their cell phones. He begins a five-minute guided meditation. So you can find your quiet moment, we're signing off early. Just remember, you can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's the meditation
1: these practices really are effortless practices. And so uh, uh, with a sense of calm and, and relaxation, let's just sit in an upright posture but really relaxed. And you can have your eyes open or closed. It doesn't matter. And let's simply begin by recognizing that every human being shares the same wish, to be happy, and to be free of suffering. All of us have this in common. And recognizing that engaging in these simple exercises can help us to calm our mind and open our heart in ways that are not just beneficial for ourselves, but can be so beneficial for others in our circle. And let's begin by simply bringing our awareness into our body, feeling whatever sensations may arise in our body, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, noticing whatever sensations we feel in our feet as they are touching the floor, sensations elsewhere in our body, simply noticing. And now let's bring into our mind and into our heart a loved one, a person, or it could be an animal, that we have an uncomplicated loving relationship with, a close friend, a family member, and remember a time in their life when they may have been suffering. And simply cultivate the strong aspiration that they be relieved of that suffering, and we can use simple phrases that we can silently repeat to ourselves. May you enjoy happiness and its causes. May you be free of suffering and its causes. May you enjoy happiness and its causes. May you be free of suffering and its causes. And simply notice whatever feelings, thoughts, sensations arise as you do this. And then... Since our time is running out, let's simply end by bringing this whole community of people here in this room. You all showed up in this room because of something in your life that led you to come together. This particular configuration of humanity is unlikely to reconvene at any other point in time and simply recognize as many of the others in this room. And let's end by wishing wishing each other happiness and wishing each other to be free of suffering. Thank you.